Um, we're going through chapters 15 and 16 of Luke. I think I could spend an entire session on the prodigal son alone, but we're going to look at a bunch of parables. Jesus is beginning to speak um, uh, first in the midst of um, a place where he is seated, where Pharisees and scribes are there um, wanting to give him trouble. So let me just pray for our Bible study. Holy Spirit of God, come do a work in our hearts as we open your word, as we look at these parables. Lord, though uh, the parables are in the context of the culture in which Jesus walked the earth, it is still relevant for those things that uh, distract us from you. It is still relevant, Lord, for the way in which we treat other people. It is still relevant, Lord, for the way in which we um, ignore the needs sometimes of others or when we puff ourselves up. So convict us, but also, Lord, encourage us. Wrap your arms around us, give us hope, give us peace, give us that joy as we look at what it means to be lost and found and how you respond with complete joy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, on your mark, get set, here we go. We're always doing this. All right, guys, so here's what I want to do. I want you to follow your notes, so as much as I love to see your happy faces, um, I have put this on here because I really hope that we can learn how to look at parables and make sense of them and put them in an order so that we can remember them. We have a tendency, at least I have a tendency, to kind of um, take parables and, and put them all together at once. And each one speaks. They're similar, but they all have uh, something unique to say to us. So the first, uh, the very first beginning, it's important to see in the first couple of verses, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sin sinners and eats with them. So there's something in this language that says, not only is he just going to a house where sinners happen to be there, but he seems to welcome them. Maybe he's hosting some of them. And for the Pharisees, they were above the sinners. They were above the bad people. Don't ask me how they could do that, but that was their perception. And um, most of us, as I got my hair done this weekend, and... I'm always worried about something, and uh, the person who has done my hair for now 38 years, um, and he's older than I, so I'm kind of panicked, like you cannot retire, whatever you do. But he said, Jan, everyone is really not looking at the other person, that what they're thinking is, what do you think of me? Not, what do you look like? And I said, you should spend time with me, because I check people out up and down, I'm very, very detailed. <laughs> But I thought, you know, I do know some people where their perception is, well, what do you think of, of me? And I think the Pharisees were condemning people, but they really thought, well, how do people look at me? Because I'm great, and I've arrived, and I'm there. And the scribes were kind of those that followed along with them. Uh, but Jesus specifically is welcoming sinners and eats with them. Now, eating is a very, very, as we know, um, intimate uh, thing that you did in the Middle East, if you ate, if you broke bread together, you were saying, this is fellowship, this is my friend. So when you uh, did that, you were making a statement about those with whom you hung out. So that's important. So then he tells this parable. And the first one, if you just look at your notes there, 
And it follows, see how it follows a sequence you have, uh, and if you're looking at this on video, please take out the, or download the cheetah paper that comes with this so you can follow along, it will help you, I hope. Um, but first you have the parable of the lost sheep, and you see that A, B, C. Um, what man of you, having a hundred sheep and having lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and goes after the lost one until he finds it? And finding it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And coming to the home, he calls to his friends and neighbors, say to them, rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep, which was lost. And I say to you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Do you see how those parallel, they're like that chiastic that I told you, it's a different reflection on it. They're lost, they're found, went after them, got them. So he's showing them that, okay, there is someone lost out there. Now, if you're practical, you go, well, you know, the bird in my hand is 99 sheep and the one up in the tree is one. Why would I bother? I mean, honestly. You know the cute little story of the boy who's taking the, the starfish that there's thousands up on the ocean. He picks one up and he throws it back into the water, which means it will live. And this old man comes by and he goes, why are you doing that? There's, you know, you can't affect, how can you make a difference? And he picks it up and he goes, makes a difference to this one. And he throws it back in. And it's kind of the same thing. You would think, why go after it? Well, shepherd is responsible for the sheep. This is a shepherd who cares about his sheep. They um, they know his voice. Shepherds, you know, when you use that language, they actually know their voice. They do this. But this one has kind of wandered off. And uh, shepherds have that, the little staff that has a crook. It's for pulling them out to difficult places where they get caught. The club is not for the sheep. It's for the wolves and, the, um, and anything else that comes upon them that tries to take their sheep away. So very, very protective. He leaves the 99 out in the wilderness. He's out in the wilderness, leaves him goes and he finds his sheep, and then here's the image that I, if I could leave anything with you today, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries them back home. Now, um, we have a, a couple in our church who have a farm up in um, Valley Center, and I've been up there. They have sheep, they have everything. It's really fun to go there. Um, but they have sheep, and of course, Jan is always thinking of a wonderful plan for somebody else's life. And I said, what if we bring one of the sheep for one of the kids' sermons? It would be so fun, because I was doing the lost sheep, and wouldn't that be fun? And um, she looks at me and she goes, sheep are big. Even lambs are big. They're heavy. You could not pick one up and carry it. So that's important to know. Whenever we talk about the lost being found, there is a cost to that, and there is a risk to that. And I talk about the risk in here in the notes. But putting a little sheep, so it's not a lamby poos, it's a sheep on your shoulders, that is a burden. That is difficult to carry. But it was lost and it needed to be found. Now, what do you think about the other 99? God, you left me out here in the wilderness. I'm like, we're all together, but where did you go? No. The 99 goes, boy, if anything happened to me, my shepherd would come and find me. My shepherd 
would bring me home. There is incredible security for the 99, even though they're not lost. If ever they be, the Lord will come to them. We used to play a game. I've never played it here, probably because I'm old now. But when I did youth ministries, called sardines. And have you heard me talk about sardines? Sardines is a game where you have um, one person who's looking for everyone, and you everyone hides, and then you try and find them. And what happens is when, kind of everyone's out kind of looking eventually for everyone, but what happens is you find the person and rather than say, I found them, you hide with them. You stay with them. And pretty soon everybody has figured out how to get together and stay in like sardines in this very dark, quiet place. And this one person is looking all over the place for finding them. I got in so much trouble in my pastor just doing that. What are you doing in the sanctuary? What do you, you know? It was, but it was this fun thing that wherever you are, God is going to seek you out. And then he's going to dwell with you. He's just not going to point up, all the luck, and, you know, you're out. I found you. Come home. No, I'm going to dwell with you. So there's that imagery. The second one. Remember we talked about Luke, how he likes to pair things together, and normally man and woman, male, female. So here's the first one's about a man. Um, what man of you would not go out and find that sheep? And then the next one he goes, in the parable of the lost coin, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light the lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it, and finding, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. The things that are really um, important about this and finding it, and if you look at my notes at the very beginning, I have way too many notes here. Um, it's about God's um, finding the loss and the joy. So the need of repentance, because he's calling, he's trying to call them back. You're going to see that. Um, in the other parables as we go through, but the lost and the joy, the joy and having found the lost. And so that word rejoice is in there a couple of times and you see that. And so again, you have the A, B, C, B, A. This one's a, a much, a little bit simpler of a um, uh, chiasmus, but it's helpful to see that crossing, how it reflects one another and the importance of that. Okay. Does that make sense? She's diligent. She finds it. She forgets all else until she's able to locate that coin. It's not, it's a expensive, not outrageous. It's not a gold coin, but it's valuable. But it's important to her. And on a necklace, if, which is probably the way it was worn, you would notice if one was gone. So um, she goes and she seeks that out. So he's identifying again the male, the female, the pairing and lost and found, and the rejoicing, the rejoicing over that which is found. All right, so now my very favorite parable in the whole world. Um, and this I'm probably going to read through. If you turn your paper over, you're going to see again, you see how under A it goes, there was a man who had two sons, and then the son is lost, and it goes all the way down 
two, one, two, three, four, five, six, explaining what's going on, and then six, five, four, three, two, one. Again, it's that chiastic, it's that reflection. It's an easy way to remember a parable. And this is a, a lengthy kind of parable. But let's, I, I want to walk through some of this because I think it's really, really important, both in the culture of what's going on. So, Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property. That will belong to me. As soon as someone says that in this culture to their living father, they're saying drop dead. Now, one of the things that's important is in almost every culture in that time, you're in a uh, fishbowl. Everybody sees what's going on. You're in a community where you're surrounded by one another. Uh, people know what's going on. That's important throughout this parable, okay? Son comes, drop dead, give me my inheritance. I want to take it, and I want to go. Now, what a father should do is fold his arms, stamp his feet, go crazy, just go apoplectic. You can't, this is horrific, and the whole neighborhood would be able, if they wanted, stone the child. I mean, this is a son that should be considered completely um, gone gone from the community, gone, gone, gone. But instead, the father does this. By the way, prodigal means extravagant, uh, wasteful in a sense. And we always think it's a prodigal son, it's the prodigal father. And you're gonna see that as we go through. Okay, so the father uh, divided his property between them. And a few days later, the son gathered all he had and traveled into a distant country. And there he squandered his property and dissolute living. It doesn't say specifically how he squandered it. So if you look over at your paper again, you have the son, a son is lost, give me my share. See, as soon as you say drop dead dad, gives him a share, you're gone, you're a lost son, you're out of the community. So he he's, goes away, he wasted an extravagant living, and, um, and he, he spends everything, everything lost, he spent everything, and then when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. That's verse 14. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Okay. Jewish tradition, you cannot eat any pork, you cannot touch any pig, you can have absolutely nothing to do with them. The other thing you have absolutely nothing to do with are Gentiles. This son who is lost, you, can't, you think you can't get to any lower than take your dad's inheritance, spend it foolishly until you start working for a Gentile and you're feeding pigs. So if you're a Pharisee, I'm the righteous here, you know, if you're a Pharisee, I mean, this is, this is like the worst of the worst. This is like, oh, yes, well, this, this, you know, he's going to die and it's come up and he's already dead to his family. It's all these things going through your mind because what they did was so appalling, so terrible. But he's desperate. So verse six, um, 16. Um, he would gladly, as a son, have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating. By the way, they're unedible for humans, just so you know. And no one gave him anything. 
So he's really desolate. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. All right, so now he has a plan. He has a change of mind. He came to himself, I'm gonna die here if I don't do something. Look at the next number six down on your paper. He has an initial repentance. Make me a servant. And I put in there, I will pay you back. Let me tell you what we don't like to do is owe anybody anything. So he's got a plan. He thinks he can earn back what he has taken from his father. He still feels like I'm going to go back with a plan and this way I'll show that I'm worthy. I'm kind of in control. I've, I've, I've contrite heart and just hire me. Just Hire me so I could pay you off, which I think is interesting. Your dad's already given you money, and now you want him to pay you to work for you so you could pay him what you took from him. Okay, so that's his plan. So he's headed back, and I think oftentimes, again, talking to the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees do well? They obey the law to the letter of the law. They do that. And so he's headed back. Um, and so he set off, and there you have, uh, he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and filled with compassion, he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Okay. Total rejection, right? No food. Nobody wants to help him. He's feeding pigs. He gets back, and what does he have? Total acceptance from his father. And here's the other thing about Middle Eastern culture. Even today, I don't think I would do well there. You must move slowly with great dignity and poise, and you never run, especially in the clothing, and which is common. Many of them still wear today. They are longer um, robes. You have like a tunic that's long, and the robes go over. Running, in order to run, you have to pull up your robes and run, which means you're going to expose your feet and legs. And feet were considered yucky, filthy. And so you didn't want to ever do that. He's going to have to do that to run to his son. You would never do that. Now remember, he's in a community, and the community's watching. He's obviously a person of, of great uh, affluence and great influence. And so here he is. He's picking up uh, his robes to run out to his son. Again, the Pharisees are going, no man of dignity would do that. He would like call this community together and goes, oh, here he comes. Let's get ready to, you know, take him out. Father didn't do that. Total rejection, total acceptance. So he runs to his son uh, and he kissed him. That's a greeting. Uh, usually you would do it on the hand, but in this case, it's probably more of a, an embracing type of embraced, kissed his son, so excited. The son did not get to speak yet before the father had already run out to him and had already embraced him. Then the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, that's as far as the son got, quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Okay, 
A robe is a sign of, of your family. You normally have that. Um, he, uh, when he says the best robe, it was probably a purple robe, purple robe with that of great value. Um, so put the best robe on him, put the ring. The ring would be the family ring. It would show whom he belonged to. And, um, and slaves didn't wear shoes normally, only those who were in the family wore shoes. Do you see how he's fully restored? Every, it's not just a kiss, good to have you home. All right, let's negotiate where you're going to work on this. It was you were totally back. You were lost. And so he said to them, kill the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Oh, wait. No, no, sorry, sorry. Go back. Um, and get the fatted calf and kill him and let us eat and celebrate. There's that rejoicing again. There's the rejoicing. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the whole community sees what the father has done and begins to celebrate. They get it. They get that forgiveness. They get that. This is a son who was lost and he's now found. It's okay that he's the youngest. I'm the youngest in my family. I've told you this before. I was 15 and a half before I was in the driver's seat because I was the youngest. <laughs> there were three siblings that were bigger and older and they always got the front seat before I did. You know, so a firstborn son. How many of you are firstborn children? How many president, presidents in the United States are firstborn? The majority. You know, there's a lot of responsibility with that. Think about that as we move through. Okay. So they began to celebrate in the whole community with them. Now, again, the whole community is there. And if you're a host, have you ever had anyone at your home? Well, you're going to dwell at your home, right? If it's in your back patio, you're going to be in your back patio. Wherever you are hosting the party, you are the host, you're there. You're making sure, in this case, you're bossing around those folks who help and taking care of them. Now the elder son was in the field, working obviously, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Okay, so if you look again back at your paper, these are two almost separate parables. They're connected because of what's going on, but what happens in them, it has that same kind of um, progression. One, two, three, it only goes to four, and then it goes four, three, two, one. Again, you see that crossover, you see the difference there. His brother returns to the house, he heard music and dancing, and asks, what's the meaning of this? And the response is, your brother is safe, and we're celebrating. Uh, your father has received him, and the language would be with peace, that kiss of peace. Your father has received him, excuse me, <clears throat> without any agenda. <clears throat> He's just asking him, excuse me. So here, here's what happens. He replied your, your, uh, that, you know, he's killed a fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then, this is the elder son, became angry and refused to go in. That is an absolute insult of the same nearly the same as the son saying, give me my inheritance. He refused to go into his father's party. Now, if, um, if you're in a culture like Philippines because Dale Bruner's um, <clears throat> and other uh, Presbyterian ministers go to, there's a seminary in, in um, the Philippines and they often go there to teach. If a parent decides to have a party, the eldest son is called and must be there and must be there the entire time. Now, and 
in today's culture, that's very, very frustrating because they say you're hanging around in these, these sons who are being very, very gracious and very nice. You pull them to the side. They are so anxious. They have a business to run or they have a job to do or something else, but their parents have called them. It's required. The eldest is part of that hosting party. Does that make sense? Same in the Middle East. The eldest is there. They're the representative. If you read, you know, uh, any kind of culture with that, you will see that. He refuses to go in to the party. So he insults his father. What does his father do? If you look at it, his father leaves the party and began to plead with him. So now, you're talking to me, if I had a big place where I could see distant and, and the elder son is out there and I leave you, you're gonna follow, right? You're gonna watch. Um, have any of you seen Love Actually? Okay, remember when he goes into the restaurant? I don't know where he's in Spain or something. He wants to marry the young woman and the entire restaurant and the parents and everybody else, they start following when he leaves. Um, because they're going to, or, or his family leaves and all their friends leave to go to the restaurant where he's going to ask the girl to marry him. And I kind of think of it the same way. Once the head of the household leaves, everybody's going with him, you would think. So they're going to go out, they're going to observe what's going on. Again, that shame issue is very evident, but that doesn't stop the father. He goes out to plead with his elder son. And so <clears throat> here's the first complaint by the elder son. He pleaded with him in his elder son, verse 29, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Okay, now that's important, a couple things. He's not working for his love of his father. He's working for the law. This is when all of a sudden the Pharisees who obeyed every law might go, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I've done all this. I've been obedient, and you don't even give me something so I could party with my friends. You see the father saying, this party is about somebody who's lost. It's not about your friends or your cronies or your buds. Or, this is about someone who was dead and is alive. Second complaint, by the way, um, look back, verse 29, that word, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. In this culture, you never address your father without saying father. Never. But he does it twice. But when his son, but when this son of yours comes back, again, not saying, Father, when my brother, but this son of yours. So he's already cut his brother off. That's his second complaint. When he comes back, look at how you treat me. I've done all this. You haven't done anything for me. And your son comes back. Um, but when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, did it save devour? It just said he was loose living. But the brothers, this is what you call um, 
license to embellish the story. <laughs> Their brother calls it's obviously, you know, is wild living and maybe, but we don't know that. We just know that he squandered all his money. You kill the fatted calf for him. My complaint is, look how you've treated me. I've done all this and you never gave me a goat. And then your son who's treated you badly, you give a party. So there are the two complaints there and that's the flipping. The son of yours has devoured your living. And a father tries to reconcile, and this is what he does. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, do you see how he changes that? You don't get away with this. He's, this is blood. This is your brother of yours, was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. All right, now look at your paper. Do you see how we have that gap and you have that number one down there at the end of the second response of the older brother? What is missing? And he came and entered the house and began to make merry and the two sons were reconciled to their father. Is that not the way it should end? I mean, didn't they find the coin and everybody come in and rejoice? Wasn't that lamb that was carried on the shoulder a great heaviness? <laughs> didn't they come and they rejoice and they all celebrate and the story doesn't have completion? Jesus in chapter nine starts heading to Jerusalem. He talks about the kingdom. He talks about Jerusalem. And most of the time, he's talking with the Pharisees to them, either directly about them or to his disciples with the Pharisees within earshot. So Pharisees, will you embrace those who have been lost and now found? That, to me, is one of the most powerful parables because it doesn't end well. We don't know what the son did. We don't know if he stayed out there or if he came in. And intentionally, Jesus leaves that so that the Pharisees are forced to try and make a conclusion. Now, if your entire life was spent on doing the law and doing the right thing and making sure that all your I's were dotted and your T's crossed and somebody hasn't done any of that, who's <laughs> colored outside the lines, gets exactly what you get and more, or seemingly more. You know, if you're forgiven more, you're going to be more grateful. I don't know how else to get around that. Look down at your paper, I have a couple of questions. So there are two types of sin here. Anyone want to guess what they might be or how you would perceive them? You can shout it out. Say that more loudly. Disobedience. Greed. Definitely greed. I'll give you a hint. When you are puffed up, you are full of pride. See, the pride of the elder brother refuse to be reconciled, and the greed of the younger took it, took all that he had. And, and those 
kind of filter out for a lot of things, but here are a couple of places where we just see this in this parable. Okay, repentance, there's two types. One who, who thinks he can earn forgiveness and the other one who knows he can't. So you either try and earn your salvation or you know you can't. It's a gift. And many of us today do that. How many folks do you know go, I hope I'm good enough when I get to heaven, or I hope I've done enough, or I'm just, you know, um, I'm, I'm just trying to do my best so God will let me in. I'm like, well, you don't want to do your worst, that's for sure, but that's not why you do it. See, that's why the brother was doing it. All right, grace. God freely offered, offered his love, love that seeks and suffers in order to save. Can you imagine a father who's lost a son because his son has just packed up his bags and left and taken everything? A couple of folks have talked to me about this and said, uh, when I um, remarried my spouse's children, uh, both widow and widower, my um, spouse's children wanted their inheritance right then, one of them, like a drop dead. There's a lot, there's a lot I think that we have to face where people will want that or, um, or you have, uh, my own parents' trust said, if there's any fighting with the children, they're taken out of the will. He did it for my elder brother who uh, preceded my mother um, and I don't think my brother would have done that, but that was my father's perception, and that's why he put that in there, and they were just, I don't want bickering. And I, do you not know folks whose families have fallen apart over inheritance? And I always think, can you take it with you? No, <laughs> can't take it with you. How much does that matter? And then sonship. One son is restored from death, and, um, and from servitude, and the other insists on remaining a servant. See, that was the problem with the elder brother. He didn't do anything out of his love for his father. He did it out of obedience, maybe that was his love language, but he did it to prove himself worthy. Everything we do for God should be out of gratitude, not because we're trying to earn God's favor, not because we hope, though we do hope God is pleased with us, but not in the sense that if I don't do it right, God won't be pleased with me. Remember, we're all sinners, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're out there wandering around, Christ died for us, lives for us, reigns in power and prays for us. Okay, I know I spent a lot of time on that one. Let's see how quickly I can get through the rest. Any questions on this one? Maybe we can, all right, we'll, we'll keep going. So Luke 16, one through 31, although not identified as parables by Jesus, they are parables at the beginning and the end of the chapter. chapter. Um, they both begin with the same formula. There was a rich man. Both parables are about wealth, not just wealth in monetary form, but in what or whom we trust. And that is key. 
The short statements in the body of the chapter 9 through 18 specifically are addressed to the Pharisees. So he begins in chapter 16 talking to his disciples, and he gives them another parable. And it's a little, um, might be a little, it's confusing to me, so if it's confusing to me, I'm going to see if you may understand it perfectly, but I struggled a little bit with this. So the first part of it, if you look down at your outline, it's the kingdom, the end time, the judgment, and a warning in a parable. And you see there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him. This, this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, this is what I hear about you. Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. By the way, he could have had him put in jail. He could have had him stoned. He could have done a lot of things. He just said, I'm dismissing you. I'm firing you. Then the manager said to him, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. If you've ever seen me work at a more ministry, you will know that I am not strong enough to go down there and hammer. It's great comic relief, but it's not very helpful to building. So this guy's like, I am not, I can't do good um, construction work. I, I'm not made for that. And, uh, it's, and I, I'm not really even gifted at, at begging, and I can't do that, so what am I going to do? Um, so he decided what to do. When I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So he summons his master's debtors one by one. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, 100 jugs of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? Replied, uh, 100 containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal home. Dishonest wealth is don't be fooled to put your trust in the wealth of the world, of the things present. They're not going to last. They're, you're you're going to have to do whatever you have to do to have that, but that is not where you put your investments. Your investments really are in the kingdom presence. So when he talks about wealth that's um, crooked wealth or dishonest wealth or whatever, he's referring to that. Don't, uh, don't depend on those things for yourself. And if you look again at um, my outline, I have so many notes. Um, you see, again, that chiastic form of A, B, B, C, B, B, A. Uh, he's informed, uh, you know that the master's local and that makes a difference. He's not someone from a foreign land, so he's under the view and eye of a master, so the master can see him. Um, again, he's considered good uh, because uh, he, it falls under where he doesn't scold, punish, jail. The steward, he merely dismisses him. There's that bit of grace that you saw also in the parable. And then a dishonest steward has many ways to cheat by simply taking a cut and then reporting what, he's, uh, what he collects. He can collect off the record, and therefore what is reported is legitimate. Some people do this with their taxes, I'm sure. Not us, but anyway. It's a kind of thing, you know, what you're reporting, what you're doing. Uh, because charges were brought to the steward, he also knows that the community was involved and it was public, and that's why he goes to the other people and he becomes a shrewd manager. 
And, um, but still, uh, the debtors are like renters. It was the most common practice to rent land and to have uh, and to have to pay some under the table to the steward. That was part of what the practice was. It's, um, it, it's interesting because the rich man starts and he sees this rascal who's not doing his job, but he also sees this rascal at the end who's, not, who's doing a job well. And so you see that kind of crossover. And then, um, and then the steward doesn't argue. That is the best thing almost all of us argue even when we're caught red-handed, don't we? Well, it was this or it was that. I, I told a story yesterday, it's a funny story. I was going up to Santa Barbara with um, a friend of ours here from the church to see my mother when she still lived up there before I moved her down. And we took Jordan with us and we had tickets to get on the train. We were taking the train up and then would you know go see my mom and take the train back. Well, I decided to get to hot chocolate for Jordan. And there's a little kiosk at the Solana Beach coffee station and I had paid for it, and they were making our hot chocolate and latte, I confess. But other people who traveled on the train all the time knew the um, barista, and so the person said, oh yeah, hi, hey, hang on, and she would like stop and get them their coffee, and mine kept getting later and later. Whereas my friend on the other side of the track down by the train already was ready to go and is looking at me and I'm like trying to go and wait and of course I'm cheap, I'm Scott-Irish, I've given my money, I want my goods. Guess what? The train came. My friend's looking, do I get on the train? Do I wait? I'm like, okay, come on, Jordan. If you know Jordan, Jordan knows how to saunter, by the way. Running is not his gift. So saunter, saunter. You know, he just walked slowly. The train left without us. Now, that's a very Middle Eastern comment. You would never say, I miss the train, which is the truth. You would say, the train left without me. So the steward would be expected to argue. It's not my fault. Couldn't trust these people, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. That would be because it's not your fault. But he doesn't do that, he, he admits to it. It's not put away, and so those are some important kind of elements to go. Um, he shows unusual mercy and generosity, the master does, in doing that. Um, and then the master's recognition of the shrewdness almost gets applauded. It does get applauded at the end. So it's about the kingdom coming and the end times. God is a God comes to judge. If you look at your notes, God is master who shows both judgment and mercy. The steward knows he's guilty. He places trust in the mercy of the master. That is the true wealth. Do you see that? that the true wealth is putting your trust in the master. Merciful, you, you deserved a, a lot worse than, than what was happening. And no matter how much recompense, a master must accept it or the steward is still doomed. So even in our imperfectness, you either forgive, you either include, you either uh, show mercy or, or, you're, uh, or you don't and so to be a, the kind of master that, the God, that God is for us, he shows us mercy continually. And then 9 through 13, it's all talking about mammon and God. And I won't do all this with you because I'm at 10 again. Um, you cannot serve two masters. We're so familiar with that verse in verses 13 through 15. He talks about all those 
Um, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. How many of us have seen Dennis the Menace when, um, when he's walking out of church and there's an offering basket there and he says to the usher holding the offering basket, my dad says he's already given at work and just leaves it at that, you know. I already gave it the office, I guess that's a word for it. I already gave it, he already gave it the office, you know, that kind of a thing that we have. And so if you love money, it is going to hurt you and it's going to affect what you're able to do. Okay, the last parable, just really, really quickly. Um, the rich man and Lazarus, and I just want, you can read it when you get in there. The name for wealthy is called dives in, in Greek and it means the rich in general. This is a very rare parable because the name Lazarus, a real name is given. And Lazarus means God is my help. And so here's the situation. This guy, the rich man has everything and he gives, you know, he, he lives scrumptiously, is that the word? I think I, I um, know here, fasted, yeah, feasted scrumptiously every day. I just love that, that's fun. You know, and he dressed in purple. Again, that's that very, very wealthy kind of uh, mentality and fine linen. And um, at the gate, at the gate of his house, so he's pretty obvious, you can't miss him, um, is Lazarus who's begging just for the scraps off his table. And that was not uncommon, you might glean, you might get what's left over, given to the port, not this guy. And even the dogs came and licked his wounds. So, you know, the whole image is of this person suffering terribly. And the rich man has nothing to do with him. So of course the rich man dies. He goes to Hades and he begins to be tormented. Meanwhile, Lazarus who dies goes up and is at the bosom of um, Abraham. So he's embraced um, in the bosom of Abraham. And, um, and, and the rich man calls up and he goes, sin Lazarus, don't, don't forget nuance that's so important. Send Lazarus to just give me a, a taste of water. Lazarus, whom he ignored, is now trying to co-opt him to be a servant. Send Lazarus to come and help me. Uh, no, says Abraham, no. Lazarus is with me. He's comfortable. It's, it's far too great where you are and where Lazarus is. The chasm is just too great. Can't do that anyway. Well, have him go and tell my siblings, tell my brothers, warn them so that they might be generous. Warn them, go and tell them. And Abraham says again, they have everything they need to know how to be generous. The Old Testament, folks, is full of social righteousness. It is full of doing justice, of caring for the poor, of taking care of those in need, of not neglecting them. It's the law. They don't need Lazarus. They just need to follow the law. If they don't listen to Moses, they're not going to listen to anyone. And Jesus ends that parable. Okay, any questions? Thank you for patience running through this. No questions? All right, guys. Let me pray us out of here. And thank you so much. It's been really fun to be here. Uh, I think I, I am. I am done for this spring and, and the fall. I'll probably be back teaching again. But until then, let's pray. 
Gracious and holy God, thank you for this time that we spend. Thank you for the prayer that Francie brought about um, Ukraine and the tremendous suffering. Lord, help us understand our own wealth, that we have it merely to bring honor to you. And let us give it lavishly as the father, the prodigal father, who lavishly, seemingly foolishly, gave all that he had so that the lost could be found. May it be so in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all.